You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to the Driving Law podcast. Um, We are recording from the road because uh, Paul Doroshenko, my sometimes co-host, hi Paul, hi, is here uh, with me. We are in San Diego, California, presenting and attending the DUI Defense Lawyers Association seminar. So this is the DUI DLA. There's two big DUI associations in the U.S. There's the National College. We're members of that. There's the DUI DLA. We're members of that, and you're they're the. They're more fun. <laughs> they're they're well they're they. They have more they, fun. They have more fun, um, but um, you're a member of that. You're the Canadian ambassador of that, and um, you're presenting today. Yeah, the first Canadian ever to serve on the board. Today was the first full day of the fall conference, so we're in San Diego. On the road, and we brought the Drager Drug Test 5000 for Kyla to be able to explain that to people. They use it in a limited manner in California. It's coming to states near you. Yes. Of course, we have it in Canada, and it's now being used. And the surprise was, Kyla, you probably didn't want me to say oh, this. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> the surprise was that, Kyla, this is a big organization. Like, there's close to a 1,000 members. Uh, there's not many Canadians. We are uh, often the only Canadians when we come to these things. Oh, and Yon. And Yon, yeah. And Suzanne. Sure, there are other Canadians, but there's, um, I don't know, I'm always surprised that there's not more people engaged in these things, but in any event. Hey, Canadian um, DUI lawyer friends who listen to the podcast, join the DUI <laughs> DLA, please. Yeah, it's worth coming to the to the seminars. I mean, yes. some obviously, just like any other conference, some seminars are better than others, and it depends on what we cover, and yeah, if my um, volume is off this week, it is because we just left a uh, post-seminar day event uh, with karaoke and a live band where one of the members of the organization plays the drums. The band was great. The karaoke, karaoke was, was really awesome, good. yeah. But I, what I wanted to get to was this thing that neither one of us expected, and that was that uh, Kyla won the 2019... No, I tried to change the subject. Badass, <laughs> badass Lawyer Award. And this has been issued before to lawyers who accomplished something big in the course of the year. And in this case, it was issued to Kyla for all of the many things that she's got, the top 25 most influential Canadian lawyers this year, um, and uh, various other things that she's accomplished. And, and they plugged the podcast, which was they, great. It was also a plug for the podcast. So the um, Kyla was quite surprised, embarrassed, and shocked. Yes. She was given a <laughs> lovely plaque um, and applauded. And uh, I've often talked about, I mean, we've. Uh, there was one thing, when we did the blood um, conference with the... Uh, with the National College when we went and did our our week in Texas learning how Mm -hmm. to test blood, Um, working in the lab, we also had these um, uh, uh, sessions, breakout sessions, where we did cross-examination. And after that, Kyla was like the talk of the seminar for a few days because everybody was shocked at her cross-examination of the expert, which was just done on the fly. Noteworthy people were also impressed with my opening statement to a jury, which is something <laughs> that you've I've never, never done, never done, and I never want to do because I don't want to run any jury trials. But um, apparently, I could, I could do it. 
Well, good yeah. for you. But um, so Kyla is well known down here uh, awesome. to the American DUI lawyers, and um, sometimes it takes recognition out of the uh, country to you know people around you. There's you know we know our thing in Vancouver, and then you go outside of Vancouver, and people are like, "Wow, this is impressive," and you are impressive. I congratulate you on that award. Well, I thank you. I've I've after this year. I've peaked, so this everyone who listens to the podcast is the beginning of the well, downward people, people slide. People pointed for that me. out. People pointed that out as well. Yeah. Um, you know, you've had David Eby on the podcast. You've had Mike mm-hmm. Farnworth on the podcast. Beverly uh, McLaughlin. Beverly on McLaughlin the show. on your video series. You've you know won these awards, recognition of your legal work. I know. Um, it's all over for me. It's all over for you, but that's but fine. That's fine. We have yeah. other brilliant people in the office, like Emma Wilson, who has just uh, sort of revived the sex assault blog, sexualassaultblog.ca. Yeah, we started a while back. Then there's Jody Hartman, mm-hmm. um, who's a brilliant young lawyer, recently had her call ceremony. She was called a little while ago, but she's really good. And, uh, and Davin Mitchell, mm-hmm. who is really smart and analytical. He's great. And, uh, and Brandon, Brandon Moscow, who and, keeps running judicial reviews and has quickly discovered the feeling of frustration banging your head against the wall when the reasonableness standard i'm coming back to our discussion from last week when the reasonableness standard permits so much injustice yeah. and roy we've got such a good team yeah we do we really right now. do yeah. okay so speaking of good teams you know who's a really good team at persuading the public to believe nonsense Oh, oh, my hand's up. Okay. Uh, Paul, do you have the answer? Is it a charitable organization that's one of the wealthiest charitable organizations in North America? Yes. Does it get a lot of money and also get all of its advertising free, paid for by networks? Yes. And is it, um, was it originally designed to appeal to angry mothers? Yes. Yes, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, out again. Out again. And this time, I mean, they have a lot of ads that are incredibly misleading or frustrating. I just heard one on the, as an aside, I heard one on the radio the other day where they were talking about the consequences of refusing to provide a sample and the consequences of of impaired driving. And they were like, it's the same. It's not the frickin' same. The consequences now, criminally, for refusing to provide a sample are worse than if you get convicted of impaired driving. If you get convicted of over 08 with a blood alcohol level uh, up to 160, also consequences less. Which to me is diff- ridiculous. I mean, Mothers Against Drunk Driving being mis- misleading is one thing. But one day we should talk about that because really one is just an obstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shouldn't be the same consequences in my mind in any event misleading advertising and this week mothers against drunk driving was out uh, oh because of a tweet that was written by sergeant sergeant glendining in the vancouver police department she has a very active twitter account it's actually a really good follow because you hear a lot of of sort of the day-to-day policing stuff that she does and it's it, she she has a nice comedic style of writing about her interactions with people but she wrote about a troubling story um, involving a vehicle that she ended up behind, uh, saw it driving with basically one tire flapping around the rim. You and I have had a couple files that started that way. Um, 
and the vehicle was all over the road, so she pulled it over, and she walked up to the window, and before she could even say anything, an eight-year-old child who was in the back seat of the car said, Thank God you pulled us over! I thought we were all gonna die! And, of course, then there was an impaired driving investigation. And... There was another story like that recently where the child in the backseat, 10-year-old, this was in the States, phoned in mom. Yep. Um, and phoned in the parent, that happens a lot. The, um, does it happen a lot? I don't it know. Does. What I do know is that whenever a child is in the car, it always gets in the news. And the humiliation mm -hmm. factor for that parent, that driver, person who made the mistake is that much higher. Yeah. And it's... I mean, painfully higher. It, your probability of getting into the news with your standard DUI, um, I should watch the accents I make, but the standard um, impaired driving investigation charge, it's still uh, you won't get in the news. to make fun of a, like a Texas or a I southern know, U.S. I know, accent. I know, I know, and I'm thinking it's wrong. It's, you can make fun of the Germans and the southern United no, States. No, I, I don't think you should do that. You speak in a German accent all the freaking time. Doesn't mean that I should do it. I'm mm -hmm. I'm stopping it now. Okay. I'm not doing my Baba's that, Ukrainian accent either anymore. I just think that you know Confederates and the Nazis, you know, yeah, they have there's, some yeah, things but there's to make all up these for. Lovely, they could take it. For there's a all bit. these lovely people in the southern United States don't need to have their drawl made to be thought of as the uh, speech of the stupid. I mean, it's not fair. It never, bothers me. I never think of because it as I, speeches of the stupid. And in but fact, that's after how it's my often described. Visits, and think of the smart people. Very beloved visits to Texas, I incorporated the term y'all into my regular parlance, as you well know. Yes, and I think it's cultural appropriation, and I'm upset about it. Really? Yes. Okay. Um, anyway, so Matt <clears throat> has capitalized on this tweet from this police officer, and there have been several news stories with the BC representative uh, for MAD, Bob Rorson, who I... Lovely guy. ...surprise debated on CTV. He's a very nice guy. Yeah, he actually, he's incredibly nice. Um, I thought he'd hurt me. I just me. disagree with him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he's on all these shows, and he's talking about how in British Columbia, we don't have child endangerment laws for DUI. And he compared BC's laws to those in Manitoba and those in Nova Scotia. And essentially he said, you know, they make the penalty stiffer in Nova Scotia and Manitoba if you get an impaired driving charge and there's a child in the car that's under the age of 16. And so why aren't we doing in this British Columbia? And there's this big push now, all these people saying that they support this, that they want to get this child endangerment law so that we protect the children that are in the back seats of drunk drivers because it's happening so often. Um, and I have so many problems with it. Tell me your problems. Problem number one that I have with it is it's actually not even really an accurate statement of the law in either of those provinces because your penalty on conviction for DUI doesn't change in Manitoba or Nova Scotia um, because of some law that they have there. The law for criminal law is the same all across Canada. So that's nonsense. What they're talking about are those two provinces administrative driving prohibition regimes. And in both of those circumstances, the penalties will be higher if you have a, a child in the vehicle when you get pulled over. The problem there is that the penalties 
in Nova Scotia administratively or in Manitoba administratively for doing the same thing in British Columbia are much lower to begin with. Than we have in British Columbia. Than we have, because in BC, as the BC government constantly likes to remind people, we have the toughest drug driving laws in the country. So creating a child endangerment law and making the penalty stiffer, uh, that makes no sense. I mean, the penalty is already well, relative stiffer to than those, it is. Relative to those other locations. Yeah, but yeah, we have a stiffer penalty yeah, We have a stiffer penalty to begin with. So if, if it's the size of the penalty that's supposed to deter people and stop this conduct, well, we already outdid them in BC and clearly it ain't working. So, I don't know. That part pisses me off. Yeah, that's a good thing to be pissed off about. Mm -hmm. What pisses me off is that most of the time the people who um, are in circumstances where they have children in the car, there's usually some other thing going on. Sometimes it's a, you know, it's, a, it's an alcoholism. We say alcohol is a disease. Uh, we should be treating these people rather than making it harder for them. The um, punishment, if it's harsher punishment, usually is going to affect the family and hurt the family. Uh, more often than not, there are circumstances where it's not, you know, we're not talking uh, upper middle class people who are driving uh, that day and have their child in the car and they've had too much to drink. It's usually people who are, you know, basically scraping by uh, and uh, it's a difficult situation and sometimes alcoholism is the issue. Sometimes it just happens to be a really bad day and the increased expense is just going to end up being making it harder for the entire family. Um, and usually those families really, really need their car to be able to get the things done that they need to get done. So to me, it's, it's over the top. Judges can sentence differently if it's appropriate. They could, is, they could make it a harsher sentence. This is the other thing that I find incredibly like intellectually dishonest about what Matt is saying about this. It's like they're going around and saying that there isn't already a law in place that makes things worse if you have a kid in your car while you're driving drunk. And that's just completely wrong. Like, maybe that was true up until December 17th at 11.59pm, but as soon as the clock struck midnight last December, there is a provision that came into force and effect in the criminal code as an aggravating, a statutorily aggravating factor for impaired driving, the presence of a person under the age of 16 in the vehicle. You get drunk, you drive, you have a 15-year-old in your passenger seat. You're, say, you're eight, 18 and you're with your 15-year-old brother, whatever. The punishment can be made worse by the judge. The judge is required to consider that factor as a negative factor against you in sentencing if that's present. So the law is tougher on people who do that. Just bothers me the stigma for those people. They're first of all, they're more stigmatized. Oh my God. Well, because it's yeah. all over the news. Yep. Um, secondly, they're going to have the ministry of children and family knocking on their door every time, every time this happens mm -hmm. to check out their house, to check out their situation, to, to look at the kids, to interview the person, to determine whether or not they, they, there's some sort of action that has to be taken by the ministry. Wander around the house and yeah. look for empties. Yeah, sure. Look to see if the toilet paper is, you know, on the, properly put so it rolls over the top and not underneath the bottom. Yeah, and the toothpaste tube isn't squeezed back from the middle. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the um, That's a joke, you guys. Obviously, that's hyperbole. But I, the point is there. I mean... It, 
the the ministry coming to your house the ministry people are every time pretty good but they it, are there the every time police make a report every time i have talked to so many parents who are panicked about the home visit in these circumstances and right next to our office in richmond is the um is the SUV with the multiple child seats that they use from the ministry if they have to go in and seize kids. So depressing. And uh, it doesn't appear to be used very often. There's very few kilometers on it. Um, they replaced it. They had a Chevy Upland and they replaced it with a SUV recently. Um, probably not a bad vehicle to buy used from the ministry. Low kilometers on it. But the, um, uh, you know, it's terrifying to have the ministry involved in your situation with your children. Mm-hmm. And you can, it can be a complete one-off, or it can be an alcoholism issue, or it could be a, you know, fighting with, argument with somebody, that difficult family situation where you feel that you have no choice but to drive. Um, you might drive home perfectly safely and have your child in the car and park the vehicle and have the police right there. I mean, Women fleeing abuse get impaired driving charges a lot more often than I think people know. And I've represented quite a few women in that circumstance you have too and if you're a mother and you need to leave you throw whether, your kids whether in you've the been car. drinking or not you put yeah, your kids in the car you and go kids in the car and go and then you have you know you may not have somebody who has the wherewithal or the ability at that point in time to admit they're a victim of abuse who doesn't explain it to the police officer so there's no sort of contemporary raneous Evidence, evidence or, record or yeah. explanation or something for the officer to take into to account and you know they end up charged yeah and then what they get a stiffer penalty because of that oh well, okay we'll leave the kids with the abuser i'm sure mad would m much more want that it's mothers against mothers yeah mad mothers against no mothers against drunk or mad, angry Mothers, mothers against, against drunk driving. No, I'm trying to think of a new one. Oh. Mothers against mothers who've been drinking and this driving is, with their children in the car. This is not working for you. No, sorry. <laughs> anyway, so the whole thing just drives me bonkers. Yes, and you wrote an article about it. I did write an article about it uh, on my blog, and there'll probably be something else coming out on it soon. A little more well-developed than my blog piece, hmm. hopefully. So there okay. you go. Um, I also wanted to segue seamlessly into our next topic by switching back to, you were talking at the beginning about being at these seminars and there's value in attending them. And the value to me doesn't always come from watching the presentations and, and hearing the speakers, lots of whom are very inspiring, very interesting, moving. There was a very moving story that was told uh, the last speaker today uh, that really got me and was catching my, my tears. There's two, two moving stories today. I wasn't as moved by the other one. Mm. But in any event, um, there's value in all of that, but there's also value in the conversations. And I think within five minutes of the first day... Yesterday, just walking in and starting just to... Just walking you know. in and saying, hi! It, uh, we, we got something of value. Yeah, it was a good discussion. Uh, we were discussing, what's Chuck's last name? Rathburn. That's what I thought, Chuck Rathburn, uh, who is a DUI lawyer in the States and kind of an intense guy. He's very smart. He's 
thinking about the science kind of like Stephen Biss. Um, he's been dealing with the Intox ECIR2 like we have in Western Canada. And he's been looking at their procedures for testing certain aspects of it. One aspect of the instrument, you're not allowed to call it a machine if you're a police officer, but we call they it a machine. They find you a in the course. Yeah, no, well, it's a machine, okay? It's an electromechanical machine. But, you know, officially we refer to it as an instrument. I, I don't know what music you can play on it, but in any event, it's like a mandolin maybe or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the, uh, it has a method purported to detect the presence of mouth alcohol uh, in the old instrument, the BAC Datamaster C and the Intoxilizer 5000 C. It would detect a rapidly declining slope. So if you had alcohol in your mouth, the alcohol would be really, really high when the subject, when you started to blow and then it would decline very quickly and then level off. And if that was the case, then it was likely that there was alcohol in the mouth. And those instruments uh, would be sampling the airflow the entire time and then eventually just stop it and then conduct a sample of what was in the chamber. And it would collect a lot of air from your lungs in the chamber. It was a good large sample. In the Intox ECIR2, it is looking for a rapid decline in carbon dioxide it has a very small sample chamber. It's only about five inches long. And that's the infrared sample chamber instead of the one in the uh, Intox ECIR2, which is at least a meter with mirrors in it. Um, and um, then it will say whether or not it's mouth alcohol because the, the rest of the instrument doesn't know. The actual um, reading of the, of the breath that's captured is captured on a fuel cell that's the same fuel cell in a, as in an Alco Sensor 4 approved screening device, a roadside breath tester, but the, the detection system for mouth alcohol is this carbon dioxide test. Yeah, which is interesting that they look for it with carbon dioxide. This is why I prefer an infrared chamber. Well, it was, it, it's, they use an infrared chamber, but they're looking for carbon dioxide, but the, yeah, the but a proper one, like in the BAC Datamaster C. It's such a better test in the, those ones with the infrared chamber reading. We don't get an infrared chamber reading. Yep. Um, from the Intox ECIR2. Ultimately, the only reading we get is from the fuel cell. So it's, as Kyla said before, it's like having a, a beige computer box with an Alco Sensor 4 in it. I mean, the difference is with an Alco Sensor 4, you get the sample the moment it's analyzed, whereas with an infrared, you can get a continuous reading so it can detect whether the alcohol level is declining rapidly and then say, oh, that's not consistent with normal breath alcohol i'm kicking the sample and calling it calling it bad exactly so chuck has been looking at the method that uh the manufacturer has for um has instructed the uh service technicians in his state uh, to use when testing this particular feature of the intox ecir2 and essentially he's concluded and it makes sense when he describes it to you that they're not actually checking um, the CO2 chamber because it's something that they can't check with their standard simulator equipment. And he, uh, in their process, they're not actually ever checking to see whether or not the mouth alcohol detection is working except by 
putting malt alcohol in a test subject and trying it. And the reason they can't test it is when you blow through a simulator, you leave your carbon dioxide behind. Well, you're blowing through, basically, a simulator blows, you blow into a hose. In that, there's a container, the hose goes into the bottom of the container, bubbles up, and then the uh, air that comes out of the bubbles is forced into the into the instrument and ultimately into the sample chamber and that's not testing in any way a declining curve of carbon dioxide so i mean aside from the fact that the carbon dioxide profile is going to be different after you've blown through that mm-hmm. that liquid uh, you're you're also not testing for carbon dioxide so when they're testing it all they can do is not use a standard they can have a person blow with some mouth alcohol in them, probably no underlying uh, alcohol do. in their lungs. They get people to swish with mouthwash. And it's not a control. That is not a control test. It's not a simulated test. It is a you know, basic functioning test, but it's not something that is ever leading to calibration of the CO2 detector. The other thing that gets me, like when you think about somebody trying to test a mouth alcohol detector by blowing mouthwash through a uh, through a breathalyzer is it doesn't mimic a real life mouth alcohol situation in those circumstances where you're at the detachment you're not ever going to be testing somebody who's just consumed some raw alcohol product you're going to be testing somebody who's recently burped or is regurgitating or maybe had a sip of something, but probably not because they should have been under relative observation by the police so that you don't see them drink. Um, you know, it's, it's these burps and regurgitation that they're really concerned about. And they're not, they, they're they're not, not simulating, simulating that at all. That. But even that, you're, you're trying to simulate a biological creature. Um, and well, you each can... time, well, and you can do that, but the problem is each time you do it as a biological creature, it's gonna be different. So if you blow through a simulator to, you know, a simulator that is designed to give a uh, BAC of 40 or a BAC of 100, and you've got the simulator solution, the temperature's up, and everything's consistent, you're doing a consistent test every time. At least that's the theory, right? Right. But if you're using a a human and you're just uh, inserting some alcohol into their mouth before they blow, it's a human. It's not going to be the same test every time because of the way it's absorbed in the mouth, how you're going to blow, your blowing patterns, whatever. So no matter what, it is, it is a, uh, it's a useless standard. And you might be identifying whether or not it can identify a mouth alcohol in one limited circumstance, but it doesn't mean that it's going to identify it in those circumstances of, as you say, a burp or a belch. All of this is fascinating, but applicability to our sort of legal system in Canada, it's going to be really hard to figure out a way to get this evidence in and to make anything meaningful out of it. Um, Well, you need the right file. You need the right file with the right facts. You also need to overcome the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Sir Lengua, where they said, you can't just have this theoretical possibility that something ha- could have occurred um, through the, you know, trying to apply the Saint-Ange-Lamarue evidence to the contrary, improper operation or malfunction. 
argument. In Sri Lanka, what happened was the defense argued that because there wasn't a proper observation period, where there'd be a burp potentially or, or belch or vomit or regurgitation, um, because that didn't happen, the samples had to be rejected and uh, the Crown couldn't gain the benefit of the presumptions. Except for the Supreme Court of Canada turned around and said, well, yes, you can raise a reasonable doubt about the the presumptions if uh, there is a uh, there is a, an improper operation or malfunction that could have produced unreliable results, but that has to be not just a possibility, but an actual probability on the evidence. So there has to be some evidence to support that, for example, there was a burp or a regurgitation or some sort of mouth alcohol factor during the observation period. So with applying this, we have to have the right set of facts with the right testimony from the client to say we have the factual basis to bring this challenge and then bring the evidence in in the challenge so it's tough well it's tough to find that factual basis yeah uh, the problem is that every intox cci or two that's out there the hundreds of them in western canada may be malfunctioning in this way yeah and you know it's always presented as the world's most reliable thing until the next one comes along at which point you know, they say the other one was had to be replaced because it wasn't that reliable, and this is the new world's most reliable thing. Um, and uh, we'll never know. You'll never know how many innocent people were convicted as a result of, you know, uh, incorrectly uh, or non-functional or not functioning at the level that we hoped uh, mouth alcohol detector. Yeah. But... But the Supreme Court of Canada seems to be uh, okay with that. So that's a problem that we have in Canada. Yeah. I mean, it's nice, though, that there is the U.S. Um, where the legal system is different because they can bring that evidence to court and they don't have presumptions. And you can show scientific flaws with the instrument to the jury and persuade them. Um, you know, and you go to an appellate court in the U.S. and you can make your arguments on the basis of that evidence. And I feel like we might make a little headway if there was some good U.S. Supreme Court level, like not the United States Supreme Court, but the, whatever their superior courts are, level jurisprudence for some persuasive value, you know? That could be. And if that comes out in uh, the United States, we will be the first to know because uh, we are members of the DUI, DLA, and the National College. This is true. One of the speakers over the last <clears throat> two days, uh, who I was really inspired by, had said in her presentation, she told a story about talking to a lawyer who defended a very famous case and telling him she thought he fucked up because of a... Uh, constitutional violation he missed and his response was that wasn't the constitution then and so it sort of inspired her to look at the law the constitution the interpretation of a case that's given to it and say just because that's the law now doesn't mean it has to stay the law and continue to push those boundaries and i was like yeah, <laughs> yeah <you're laughs> like i told her i like basically want to be her best friend <laughs> the um I was less inspired by that because I'm not as enthusiastic, but I'm happy to see your enthusiasm and the fact that you figure these things out and push them to the yeah, next level. Yeah, well, why not? You know, just because Sierra Lingua was the law on the facts of that case doesn't mean it should be the law. You just need the right facts to show the judge why. Okay, then.
Have we exhausted this topic? Yes, we have, but I'm glad we're talking about the Supreme Court of Canada. Because I thought we should update people on what's going on in the challenges to the immediate roadside prohibition regime. So a lot of things have been settled. I mean, uh, lots of cases in the last year have settled things. Some have gone our way, others have not, depends on the issue. Uh, we have been in, the way we've structured our arguments in the last couple of years in immediate roadside prohibition cases are to argue this, and we also have this, this, and this argument, which we don't necessarily expect to succeed on, but there is an appeal in the works that is coming ahead that could affect these other cases if we don't succeed on the thrust of the main arguments. At least these other arguments have been made. Yep. So if we appeal it, need to appeal it later on, if there's a change in the law, we can go back and say, look, we made this argument back in this case in, in 2018, and this person should get a remedy at this point. And we've been doing that. And sometimes we've succeeded. Kyla's succeeded. It hasn't been me. It's always been Kyla. Uh, well, Brandon had a couple. Um, Brandon, I was going to say. But um, some of these arguments that um, we've made have assisted people, and we've been able to deal with these cases and and get some back. Others have been uh, haven't gone our way, uh, and so we don't have a remedy for those old cases. But we also now have the sort of the last stage of this thing. Yep. which is the constitutional uh, assessment or consideration of the 3.5 version of the IRP scheme, which we argued and lost in two levels of court so far. Yeah, so we thought, let's try and argue it and lose it in another level of court. Well, we don't want to lose it. No, we, we don't want to lose it. We would like to win it. We have nothing to lose by doing it. And so... Well, dignity and... and I and lost pride. that a long time ago, my friend. And money. <laughs> Yeah. I gave it up for Lent. It's, you know what, it's, I feel like a moral responsibility to... Exhaust every argument exhaust as far every as we argument, can. Exhaust every angle, take every possible step. And also, I feel a moral responsibility to invest some of what I earn doing it back into doing it. Because I don't, you know, I'm not just doing this for my clients i'm not just doing this for my enjoyment i love my job i'm trying in the way that i have with the very limited skill set that i have to do what i can to make the world better well we're also trying to make the law what we think it should be that's the same as making the world better in my view yeah <laughs> well and when we see the interpretation of the law that the government uses i mean basically what happened with the irp scheme is they looked at the criminal code impaired driving scheme and said, if you hire a lawyer like, you know, the equivalent of Kyla and Paul and the other, you know, sharp DUI defense lawyers that we used to have in British Columbia, um, most of them have retired or moved on. There's a few hanging around. But if you, if you do that, you pay, you know, so many thousand dollars and you beat your case. And yep. the government gets frustrated because those people succeed. The people who didn't have the money wouldn't succeed. And oh, and that's our fair acquittal enough. rate in British Columbia was like <clears throat> our acquittal rate was very high, high because it was a you know we got very good at it. We all got very good at it, um, and so they were frustrated with that. And so they looked at it and they said, well, the the standard is too high for what the police need to prove in these criminal cases. So we're going to lower the standard 
wow, are we ever going to lower it? We're going to lower it to an administrative scheme. And that's fine, okay, if you take that step. But then the next step they took was the, was the bad one. They said, and not only are we going to lower the standard, we're going to reduce the quality of the evidence to, uh, to something that is barely, uh, uh, you could barely support, just that the bare minimum. Uh, one page to, document. Yeah, and that was what they did. Um, and that was the first version of the IRP scheme. So they reduced the, the quality of the review of the evidence, had gone from a trial to a 30 minute hearing uh, with a, somebody from the superintendent of motor vehicles. Mm -hmm. The quality of the evidence had gone from a uh, breath sample into an approved instrument that purportedly could detect mouth alcohol and other things. Um, and the, um, the actual evidence was just a page. Uh, and uh, now using roadside breath testers. So that was the whole idea with the IRP scheme, and we've never been happy with it because we don't like the quality of the evidence and the quality of the review. Yeah. But rather than bemoan our status, we have challenged and challenged appealed and, and challenged appealed. some more and appealed and appealed and appealed and... Appealed and uh, and the government has changed the law. So the first time the law was struck down, the second time it was rewritten and it was upheld. The third version, in our view, brought it back to being very similar to the first version, which is why we felt that it should be struck down again. We lost, we lost, but we're going to keep trying. We're going to keep trying. So today, officially, officially filed today. Was it? Yeah. Oh. Paul didn't even know. See. You heard it here first, folks, on the Driving Law Podcast, officially filed today at the registry of the Supreme Court of Canada in Ottawa, an application for leave to appeal the constitutional challenge to the immediate roadside prohibition scheme. It will probably be denied. I can tell you this because statistically, hey, it you... will probably be denied. If I apply a balance of probability standard... You don't think we'll succeed? No, it's not that I don't think we'll succeed. I think the odds, statistically, generally, are against us. The BC Court of Appeal has really turned around their game. They have dropped their overturn rate at the Supreme Court of Canada and their leave rate significantly. They are no longer the most overturned appellate court in the country. Ontario, get your shit together. Um, and so there's that. There's the statistics on it. The other reason I think it won't get leave to appeal, I do that cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada but didn't show every Monday, so I'm paying attention to these things. And we have a very strange structure on the Supreme Court of Canada right now. Things that ordinarily would have been no-brainers for leave under McLaughlin's court are not getting leave, and things that to me would have been, oh, that would never get leave, are getting leave. So because I believe in the fact that this should get leave and because I've been so surprised at the leave decisions on cases lately, I think also probably we won't get it. You don't think you'll get leave? No, but those are my reasons why. Well, we discussed it a while back and um, when we got the decision and we thought to ourselves that we have to at least seek leave. You have um, to try. And it was worth the effort. And it and it's a case that is important. It's not just about, it's not just about drivers in British Columbia who got punished under BC's drunk driving scheme. It's about the state 
wielding all of this power and all of the knowledge and information they have that comes with this power, holding all of those cards very close to their chests and then saying, hey, you, you've got to prove to me that this wasn't done right, but you can't have any information about what I've got. And then that, that to authorize that, to say, that's fine, because people will also be able to know some things that will establish their defense, so that's good enough. When you have like that, that power imbalance and the, and the Court of Appeals analysis on it just misses the huge discrepancy there is there. So It's funny, I was just thinking, I mean, we're in San Diego and I presented on this like six or seven years ago here in San Diego to the Canadian Bar Association. Um, on this particular problem with um, yeah. the standards of proof in administrative tribunals and the methods and application of administrative tribunals. And when I finished that presentation, a lawyer came up to me who had been dealing with a railway tribunal. And um, I feel like Donald Trump, you know, when he describes us, oh, this guy came up to me, a big tough guy in tears. He was in tears. Well, this guy was like, he said it was the first time somebody had, had spoken and pushed back against the problem with tribunals and that he's been dealing with this for years and how frustrating it's been for him and that he thought nobody else was experiencing it this way and we're experiencing it across the country. So I think the national mm -hmm. issue aspect there is there, whether or not the Supreme Court of Canada recognizes it when they're reading your your yeah. leave application. And I if don't they know. recognize it, if it matters to them, because the things that seem to matter to them right now are new. It's a dynamic court. Uh, we, you know, and there's a new Supreme Court of Canada appointment starting soon. He was sworn in last week, so we're going to see more shakeups in the court. So I'm, I'm interested to see how it all, all plays out. But uh, we will update you here when we know more, which will probably be in like six, eight, ten months. It takes a while before so, they look at it. Yeah, before they even put it on a judge's desk. We had previous ones that we thought should have been, should have got leave, uh, seemed to us to be, you know, needing leave, and we didn't succeed. Yep. Um, and then, of course, we had Wilson where, you know, we were shocked that we got leave. Yeah, so um, I've been so, wrong before. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> we don't have a ridiculous driver of the week because our discussion at the beginning of the podcast about the ridiculous mad... Uh, thing right now uh, reminded me of the ridiculous driver fact of the week. Which is? This is one that is on an ICBC radio advertisement. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And it talks about the way that the insurance model is changing from, you know, following the car to following the driver. And one of the things they say is if somebody borrows your car and they get in an accident and you, uh, you're going to be on the hook because it's, it's your car, your car and it should follow that driver and accidents right now are going to go on your driving record and we're going to change that. Accidents, ICBC keeper of the driving record do not go on your driving record 
It's not on your driver's abstract. There's nothing on your driver's abstract about an accident. No. So it's the ridiculous driver fact of the week because I swear every time I hear that ad, I'm almost in an accident. I haven't heard the ad. I've only had you tell me about it. Um, it reminds me of our uh, Port Moody police in the last week where they were giving incorrect legal advice essentially by tweet Yes. Whatever their method yep. was there. Ridiculous um, driver advice of the so, week. So, so it happens. I mean, you know, I I I'm understand that they're just trying to discourage people from driving badly and they're also trying to warn people about the fact that their premiums are going up. So that's their twist on it. Never expect the government to be straight with you. Anyway, there you go. That's our podcast. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. We'll probably have more highlights and information that we have learned to impart upon all of you uh, after we finish the conference. So if you need to find us, you can find us online, VancouverCriminalLaw.com, or give us a call, 604-685-8889. <laughs>